Our sermon text this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. After leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and he brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see um, Simon and Andrew, and we see James and John respond to your call. And they just leave everything and come after you. And it strikes me that you left much more to come after us. And because you've done that, we have every expectation that this morning you will come again. And you will visit us. And you will stand forth from this portion of your word. And you will minister grace to your sheep. And you will instruct us. And you will call us. And you will invite us to join you in your work. And you will call us to repentance. And you will heal us. And we believe also that you will come to save today. And so we look forward with great anticipation to what you will do. Everything about these next minutes depends upon you and your goodness and your power. And so we commit ourselves and this time to you. In your name. Amen. Well, um, one of the things that's inescapable when you begin to actually read the Gospels and think about them is that Jesus's ministry compels us to face a lot of very unpleasant things. Um, we've got to face the facts and we see it um, in in this passage. The world is not well. 
And the reason the world isn't well is because we're not well. Uh, Just look at uh, the catalog of things in verses uh, 23 and 24. What's the world like that Jesus begins his ministry in? What's the world like that Jesus comes to? It's full of sick people and people who are afflicted with various diseases and pains and oppressed by demons and epileptics. And it probably also means mental illness because the word that Matthew uses there describes being moonstruck. It's probably a a, a mental illness word and paralytics and he healed them. An amazing catalog of pain and sadness and grief and It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds just like our world. And then you go over to verse 16 and listen to the way the world is described in in this verse. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. The world's a dark place. And Jesus' ministry exposes that. And the question is, what, or rather, who has caused it? And the answer that the Bible gives is very shocking, because the Bible says that we've caused it. That's what God says. This is what the kingdom of man has produced. This is what the rule of man looks like. What the life of man becomes uh, under the rule of man. The reason the world is the way it is today, the reason our lives are the way they are today, is because uh, man has thrown off uh, God's design for man. Man was created in the image of God to be God's uh, vice regents, to to be to have such a place of dignity in the universe that God called us unique from every other creature. To be his image bearers in the world. And what did it mean for us to be his image bearers? It meant that we were supposed to represent him in the earth and in the world and extend his rule in the world. And we know that from Adam and Eve and every single one of us, with no exception thereafter, preferred the rule of man over the rule of God. And sin is in its very essence a de-creation. It's an undoing of what God has created. I wonder if you've ever thought about sin that way. That what sin is, is in its essence, yes, it's rebellion against God, absolutely. And most fundamentally, it's an offense against a person. Okay, So much more than just breaking a rule. But what is the nature of of that offense against God. What it is, is it's an attempt to undo what God has created. It puts man above uh, the Creator. And it, and it robs us of the dignity that God had for us. And we know it. See, we know it in our hearts. We know that the world is not well. And we know that we're not well. And we know that because we've been made in God's image. God's made us to know him. And there's only one remedy for decreation, and that remedy is recreation. And we are just as powerless to bring that about by our own power as we are to say, time for the universe to start over. Let there be light. 
None of us can do that. And none of us can recreate what our sin has decreated. No, in order for that to happen, God has to come. The Creator has to come back. And the Creator has to come and personally take upon Himself the burden that we have created by our rebellion against Him. And he has, to, he has to remake us and remake the world in which we live. And that is exactly, exactly what the story of the Gospel is. That God has come back and is through Jesus undoing the decreation of our sin. And He is recreating men and the world that God has made. And that's why when Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry, he says Jesus in Galilee was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And that means literally the good news of the kingdom. Because God is coming back. The time of decreation is being defeated and pushed back. And in the person and work of Christ, the recreation of the heavens and the earth and man as God's image bearer is moving forward. It's good news. And the best news of all of that kingdom is the king. What kind of a king would do that? And that's really what I want to focus on with you this morning. Two, two things. Again, I know it's two weeks in a row. I violated uh, Presbyterian headquarter rules. I only have two points in the sermon. Sorry. Next week, I hope it's three. But just two things about Jesus that are just absolutely stunning that Matthew wants us to see at the very beginning of his ministry. Again, we're in this the end of the introductory phase of Matthew's gospel. And so he's introducing themes about Jesus that we're going to see played out and opened up and developed over the rest of the gospel. And this morning, just two marvelous things about uh, our king and his goodness that Matthew just sets out for us. The first is, is that he comes for us. And the second is that when he comes for us, he calls us to himself in three ways. So let's look first at the wonder that he comes for us. It's very interesting how Matthew, uh, how Matthew describes things to us. There's a lot of geographical did you notice that when Paul was reading the text? There's just a lot of geography in this text. and It doesn't really have a lot of power for us. If, if you're as geeky as I am, you'll go home this afternoon and you'll count how many geographical references there are in the text. I think there are 17. And that's a lot. And so obviously that's a big deal for Matthew, right? I mean, we may not know what that means yet, but we know that to Matthew, the geography here is a big deal. Now, I know that you don't find yourself electrified when you hear Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee of the Gentiles. I know you well enough to know that. But let's think about that for a minute. We understand this. Let me give you an analogy. When somebody, whether it's a man or a woman, decides they're going to run for president, you know, the announcement of that is a big deal, right? And it's not just the the message that's delivered, but the place... Right. The place where that candidacy is declared is always very carefully selected. And it's usually laden with symbolism It's designed to be part of the message. Right. And so when President Obama, who was then Senator Obama, do you remember where he announced his candidacy? He announced it in Springfield, Illinois. 
the home of Abraham Lincoln. And so there's very deliberate symbolism there, invoking the legacy of Lincoln. Now, Jesus isn't running for office, but geography matters. And where he begins his ministry in Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee of the Gentiles is hugely significant. It's it's radioactive with significance in the Bible. And Matthew's readers, Matthew particularly as a Jew, and Matthew's original audience as Jews would have known the, the power of this place. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were in the northern part of the Promised Land. Um, and, and so that whole northern region in Jesus' day was known as Galilee. So we're at the northern part of the land. Jerusalem's in the south in Judea. And that northern part of the land had a very checkered history. You remember from Darren's messages back in January about Elijah and King Ahab? Well, that all takes place in the northern kingdom. After the kingdom split under Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12, the northern kingdom uh, broke off from the southern kingdom. And for the whole duration of that kingdom, it was marked by idolatry and unfaithfulness. And most of the Lord's prophets were sent to the northern kingdom to prophesy against the idolatry that became increasingly entrenched in the northern kingdom. And there was not a single good king in the north. They were all wicked. They were all idolatrous. And so the north was just such an absolute disaster of opposition to God that in 722, God sends the Assyrian army after many warnings to come and to conquer the north. And the Assyrians worked exactly the way the Soviets did. When they took over territory, they'd take people out and then they'd bring their people in. And so by Jesus' day, the northern kingdom, Zebulun, Naphtali, that whole region of Galilee, was full of centuries deep rooted Gentiles who brought with them, who had brought with them when the Assyrians first brought them, brought with them all of their pagan religious practices. So, in Jesus' day, Galilee was so full of Gentiles that God would call it Galilee of the Gentiles. That's supposed to hurt a little bit. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, here's the point. These are spiritually forsaken places. These are places that are spiritually forsaken, not because God has forsaken them, but because they have forsaken God. Places that have been defined for centuries by their abandonment of God, by their rebellion against God, by their defiance of God, by their their disregard of God. And that is where Jesus begins his ministry. You see, out of all the places that Jesus picked... He picks the place with the worst history and absolutely no merit historically. The only part of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee's history that mattered was how unworthy they were. And that is when the king comes. When the king comes, that's where he begins. Why? Because his ministry is all about recovering. Recovering and restoring 
what has been lost. And we know, friends, that Zebulun and Naphtali, that these are unique. They're representative. Because what's true of Zebulun and Naphtali in the Lord's in the days of the Lord's earthly ministry is true of the whole world, isn't it? I mean, what place on this earth has not been defined by its abandonment of God? What place on this earth can you point to and say, well, the history of that place is marked by unbroken faithfulness to God? There, there isn't one. And so, in God's eyes, the story of the whole world is the story of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is just, this is where Jesus begins so that we can see it clearly. If you had talked to most of the Jews in the first century, they would have expected the Messiah to become, to come to Jerusalem to essentially baptize, if you will, Jerusalem as the holiest of places. They wouldn't have been able to see it if Jesus started there. But because he starts in Zebulun and Naphtali, ah, then we know that the king has come and he's come to the places that don't deserve it so that he might recover them for God like the rest of the earth. So when John records Jesus is saying in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He is talking about a vast territory that is all defined by its opposition to God. And yet that's what God loved. It's an awesome vision. And look at the people. Of course, that kind of history would have a toll on people, wouldn't it? And look at how they're described. They dwell in darkness. They dwell in the region and shadow of death. That's a very powerful set of images, isn't it? Darkness is not part of their experience. It's their permanent experience. It's where they live. It's their dwelling place. It's... And that darkness is the shadow of death. Death is so big and it's a reality that is so large. It, it casts its shadow over everything that they are and everything that they do and everything that they experience. And we know, of course, that the Bible is always going to connect death with sin, right? The wages of sin is death. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's a picture of the consequences of sin. And as a result of that decreating resolve of man to assert the rule of man over against the rule of God, the bitter consequences are that man cannot escape the reality that no matter where he is, he lives in the region and shadow of death. Right? And that's true again, not just for Zebulun and Naphtali. It's true for the whole world. What part of the world, friends? What people group, what part of history has not had the shadow of death hanging over it? Right? And it's part of the story. And the king comes. He enters that darkness. He's coming to the people who have been dwelling in darkness. And it's an amazing story of His grace, isn't it? Notice what Matthew is reminding us of, that the King comes all as a matter of grace. It's His initiative. It's not that the people dwelling in darkness say, huh, we're dwelling in darkness. There's the light. We're going to go find it and bring it back. Notice the image 
is that the great light has shone upon them in the way that the sun shines upon us. We do not command the sun. We receive the sun. That light has come regardless of their merits, and it's come all at the initiative of the king. It's that the light moves into the darkness. It's all of grace. Friends, that's how Christianity is, right? That's just a picture of the way the gospel works. Every other religion, every other way of life, man ascends to God. And the wonder of the Christian gospel is that the movement is exactly the opposite. God descends to man. God descends to man. That's what the cross is about. That's what the good news of the kingdom is about. It's not that we build a utopia on the earth and we polish it and we get it just right. We have just the right rules. We have just the right behavioral norms and custom norms. And then we have this great civilization. We say, here you go, God. Is it good enough? You notice how every other system, that's exactly what we're taught to do. And in Christianity... Kingdom of our Father comes down as a gift. God comes. He's gracious. He comes with compassion. He comes to show mercy on the people who are dwelling in darkness. This is a very important thing to know about God, is that God has compassion on His enemies, those people who hate him, who reject him, God doesn't hate them. God has compassion on them. Think about Saul. Did Saul hate God? Did he hate the Lord Jesus? Yes, he did. And what does Jesus do? He moves toward him with mercy. And in Acts 26, he says to Saul, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? compassion. He comes. This is an amazing king who comes at his initiative to people who've thrown him off, who comes because of his compassion toward them. The heart of God is so lovely. And he comes not just to bring the light, but to be the light. That's one of the most shocking things that Matthew is telling us here. You notice, think about the sequence here. In verse 15, he says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Now, what's the great light? That's the question. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What's the light? And the very next thing that Matthew tells us is verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what the light is? The light is Jesus. The light is, the great light is Jesus' presence. He's the king and he's come. He didn't come just to bring a set of teaching or a moral code or a regimen that people are supposed to follow. Like you didn't get the rules right, so I'm going to make them clear. He didn't come to bring the light. He came to be the light. And there again, we are facing something that totally sets Christianity apart from every other religion. You would never hear Buddha say, I am the light. You would, you would hear Buddha say, I know what the light is. Let me show you the light. You would never hear Muhammad say, I am the light. Muhammad would never say that. He would say, let me take you to where the light is. Jesus comes and he is the light. 
The remedy for the darkness is a person. It's not a code. It's not legislation. The remedy is a person. And Jesus says later in John's Gospel, He says, I am the light of the world. Right? He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is a great king. This is a good king. This is a king who comes into the darkness personally. And if you wanted proof of his kindness and you wanted proof of his compassion and you wanted proof of his grace, friends, remember that he's the light. And he has come to bring a new day. Do you see that? On them, verse 16, a light has dawned. You see, there's this announcement that Matthew's using Isaiah 9, uh, 1 and 2 to illustrate to us that when Jesus comes, Jesus is coming is the beginning of a new day. A new day that is going to have no end. And his earthly ministry was the dawn of that day. The way God defeats the darkness is by beginning a new day. Recreating, right? Saying, let there be light. And that light is Jesus. And He has come now to defeat the darkness, to defeat sin, to defeat death. This is the purpose of His ministry. And the most amazing thing of all is how God planned that He would do that. This is the most wonderful thing. How is God going to defeat the shadow of death in Jesus? How is He going to cause the new day of God's rule to dawn? It was not enough for the great light to come and shine. No, the great light had to come. And here's the great irony of the Gospel. The great light Himself had to come. And the way He would extinguish the darkness is by being extinguished Himself. This great light would come into the region of the shadow of death. And He would liberate us by being Himself swallowed up in that darkness on the cross. That's why the sky was dark as the Lord was being crucified. Do, do you know how radical that is? When John, the Apostle John, wants to describe God, he says, this is the message we have received from Him and which we proclaim to you. God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And then... The psalmist in Psalm 104 says, O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a garment. God is light. And the wonder of what Jesus' ministry entailed, the cost that He was willing to bear for us, friends, the goodness of His heart as the King who would be Redeemer and Savior of His people was precisely in this. That Jesus came to personally bear the burden of the reversal of all those statements. So that on the cross, as Jesus was made sin in our place, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it was truly said of Him, it would be truly said of Him, that the Son of God was darkness. And in Him, there was no light at all. 
covering himself with the darkness of our sin and God's judgment against our sin as his only garment, friends. (laughs) The goodness of God to come for us, to defeat the darkness of our decreation by absorbing it. It's full weight all by himself. How can we possibly be cynical about that God? How can we not want to give him all of our lives? How can, how can our lives not be defined by thankfulness, by humility, by a determination to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? And the great wonder of the gospel, the great wonder of the cross, that it's a mystery, but it's, it's celebrated over and over and over again. It is true that the light, though it was extinguished on the cross in a certain sense, that, that light of God allowing himself to be just wrapped in the darkness of sin and God's judgment against our sin, that there's a sense in which never did the light of God and his goodness ever shine more brightly than it did on that cross. That's why John says uh, over and over again that the cross is where the glory of Jesus is seen most clearly, where the glory of God is seen most clearly, because the light of God's goodness, his love, his holiness was all on display there, friends. And that's why we have to keep going back and back and back. That is the way to know God in His goodness and in His unyielding holiness and in His fathomless love for those who cast Him off. And He calls. He calls us to Himself. He does all that for us. He comes for us in that way and for that purpose to set us free, not to punish us. He comes to the place that's defined and the people who are defined by their forsaking of God. And He comes not to condemn them, but that that He might give Himself to be forsaken in their place, that they might be saved through Him. It is absolutely stunning. It's good news. And it's true. And when He comes to do all that for us, He calls us. There's some radical calls that Jesus issues in this passage. Three of them. The first is to repentance. The second is to follow him. And the third is to join him in his work. And in a sense, all three of these things are really one call. It's artificial to break them apart, but we can't we can't really understand them well unless we separate them. But I just want you to know that for the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to separate them. And it's an artificial reality. We're going to disassemble those calls and we're going to put them back together. Okay. Because there really is no true repentance unless there's following. There is no true following unless there's a joining in Jesus' work. There is no meaningful joining in Jesus' work that doesn't begin in repentance. You can't separate these things. You can't say, well, I've repented of my sins, but I'm not going to follow Jesus as Lord. It doesn't work that way. I'm going to repent of my sins and I'm going to follow Him as Lord, but I'm not going to have anything to do with His mission. can't do that either. So, with that warning and disclaimer, I always feel like I've got to do that. Let me, uh, let me separate them a little bit. You know, you might think 
that the first call of Jesus would be different than it is. But you notice the very first words that Jesus speaks in his public ministry, the very first word that he speaks in his public ministry in Matthew's gospel is repent. Not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but repent. That's an amazing thing. What does that tell you about Jesus' experience in the world? I mean, he's lived about 30 years in our world by this point. What does that tell you about his understanding of who God is? His understanding of the way men are and the way men's hearts are. That when he begins his public ministry, the first thing that he has to say, the first burden of his ministry, the first implication of the kingdom's good news that it's come is that men are being called to repent. What it means is that Jesus, who knows the hearts of men, who knows our hearts and knows God, he knows us more accurately than we know ourselves. He knows God more accurately than we could ever know him. He says when he looks at those two things, he says that the first and most urgent message that human beings need to hear is repent. Now, what does that mean? We looked at this when we were looking at John's ministry in chapter 3. And you remember we talked about how in the Bible there's a, a bunch of different images for repentance. There's a dominant image in the Old Testament. There's a dominant image in the New Testament for repentance that are very helpful. They're, they're not in conflict with one another. They're very complementary. In the Old Testament, the idea of repentance is usually expressed uh, by the verb to turn. And so it means that sincere repentance involves a change in direction in one's life. The sincerity of repentance is not just sorrow for sin that's in words, but sorrow for sin that is matched with a change in conduct. Okay? That's helpful. And in the New Testament, the dominant image for repentance is about a new mind. It Essentially, it's hard to translate the, the word for repentance literally, but if you were going to do it literally, you would say that repentance to repent is to know after. To know after. In other words, in the New Testament, the dominant idea for repentance is a radically new way of thinking about yourself and about God and your life. That once you understand who God is, that changes the way you understand everything else. Your life and everything. And Jesus' first word is repent. It's even more shocking who he says it to. Because remember, he's in the land of the people who are dwelling in darkness. People who are dwelling in the region of the shadow of death. And his first word is not there, there. His first word is, you are not just victims of the darkness in which you dwell. You bear a real, in God's evaluation, a real moral responsibility for the darkness in which you dwell. Friends, only a king who is holy, could talk that way to people. And in fact, only a king who is holy and good would talk that way to people. Because 
You know, Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I know it may not sound very compassionate for Jesus to to walk into the midst of the people who dwell in the region and shadow of death and not put his arm around them and say, I just want to speak words of comfort to you. He puts his arm around them and speaks kindness to them when he calls them to repent. Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Why? Why does Paul say that? For the simple reason that God would not call anyone to repentance whom he didn't want to save and rescue. And so the call to repentance, friends, is a call to enter the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' first call, to turn and to think radically different about our lives in light of who God is. And the urgency of the message, you can know through the dignity of the messenger God sends to bring it, right? That's the first call. The second call in verses 18 through 22 is Jesus' call to us to follow him. He says uh, to Simon and to Andrew, he says, follow me in verse 19. This is the call to discipleship. And, and essentially, although Matthew doesn't record it, he presumably says exactly the same things to, uh, to James and to John, the sons of Zebedee, and they follow in exactly the same way. So we have these two uh, portraits of, of what we learn in, in other places, our partners, right? These four brothers, two in one family, two in another family, are partners in this fishing business. And Jesus steps into their midst and, and calls them to follow him. Now, a lot of times when you read this account in uh, Matthew, you say, oh, my goodness. They don't, there's no evidence that they even knew Jesus' name and they leave everything and follow him. Friends, this is not the first time these guys have met Jesus. OK, read the early chapters of John's gospel for the early background. But the, dra- the dramatic nature of the call should not be underestimated because of that background. Notice the drastic and unsettling and life-reorienting nature of the call that Jesus is issuing. There are three aspects to it that are just absolutely stunning. First, it's personal. Notice that Jesus says, follow me. And it tells us something very important about the nature of what it means uh, to be a Christian. To be a Christian at its essence is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship that secondly is not only personal, but is unequal by its very nature. Jesus is the master, right? The exchange doesn't unfold this way. Jesus says, follow me. And Simon and Andrew say, no, you follow us. Jesus, we're having trouble with our fishing business. We want you to come and bless our fishing business. Notice Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't say, or Simon and Andrew don't say to them, Hey, Jesus, so glad you're here. Uh, had some squabbles with my wife this morning. Would you? I really want a peaceful home because if I don't have a peaceful home, I can't get my work done. If I can't get my work done, I can't give to the synagogue. Would you come with me and go home and talk to my wife for me? And my mother-in-law, wow. It doesn't work that way. Do you notice how, I mean, as I thought about this, I thought, wow. 
so much of my life with the Lord Jesus over these last 30 years reverses this essential dynamic. I just have to confess that to you. But that's not the setup. It's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not why Jesus came to call us. He came to call us to himself, to, to him in a relationship. Do you know him that way, friends? Do you know him that way? He didn't call you to have a relationship with orthodoxy or with the Bible. He called you into a relationship with him. And if you're a non-Christian here and you're wondering what Christianity is about, let me tell you that preeminently it is about this person, Jesus Christ, who has a real personality and that personality has contours and character. He is his own master. We don't get to reshape him like a Plato guy into whatever thing we want him to be. He's the king. And he calls us into a personal relationship with him where he's the master. And that personal, unequal relationship is a total relationship in its scope. That's the third thing. Every area of life is subordinate to Jesus' call. Matthew is going to outline this for us again and again and again, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. But for now, it's just enough to see, it's just enough to see that James and John and Simon and Andrew, they understand that when Jesus calls them, that means their whole lives. That means every other area of their life is subordinate to Jesus' call. Now, later on in the gospel, we're going to see that they still continue to fish. They still continue to keep their boat. But their business, their work was not the center of their lives anymore. It was subordinate to Jesus. Jesus is called to make their work illegitimate. Don't, don't, don't go there. It just made it subordinate. Jesus is called to make Peter's marriage illegitimate. It just made it subordinate. And we know, right, that this continued to be a growing edge. This is really important. Okay, that it continued to be a growing edge in their lives as you go farther in the gospel. You know, right? We continue to see these disciples. They were works in progress. And even after the Lord ascended to the Father's right hand, they continued to be works in progress. It's a growing edge, this commitment, in which as much as we know about ourselves, we commit to as much as we understand about Jesus. And the nature of the Christian life is that both of those things are supposed to be growing all the time. So, the farther you get into the Christian life, the more surrender there is. Right? So I want to ask you this. Where do you feel today the encroaching rule of Jesus in your life? What is he pushing against in your life? What is he calling you, friends, to yield to him, to surrender to him? What are you really nervous he's going to talk to you about? And so you don't pray and you don't read scripture. Or you do, but you skip over those passages that you have a sneaking suspicion are about the very thing you most want to avoid talking to them about. Is it an area of your life? Is it your money? Is it your sexuality? Is it your tongue? Is it your work? Is it your fears of the future? Is it your kids? 
Friends, that rule of Jesus is a good thing. It's actually the safest thing of all. It's not without its risks, but it comes with limitless benefits. And there is nothing that Jesus will call you and I to give to him that he has not already given so much more for us. Friends, John and James leave their father for the one who left his father and who was left by his father on the cross and in the garden so that he could purchase his bride's salvation. He emptied himself of his prerogatives as God, right? And he didn't account, he didn't, he didn't hold on to those things. Why? So he could purchase the bride for his father's kingdom. He gave up everything for us. Friends, finally, the third call, and I'll just do this very quickly. It's the call to join him in his mission. And that's verse 19. Do you notice what he says? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he says this to fishermen. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not a fisherman. But I do know this about fishing. Or about fishermen. Fishermen only make their living if the fish die. Right? The fish have to die in order for Peter to live. And what Jesus is doing is he's reversing for these four fishermen the very nature of their lives. He's saying, I have a totally different message, uh, mission. I'm here for a radically different purpose. It's not to kill the fish. It's to rescue the fish. It's to rescue the men. See, in the Old Testament, the image of uh, fishing was used to describe how God's judgment would catch the wicked. And now Jesus turns this on its head and he says, my mission that I call you to join me with is about saving. It's about rescuing. It's about catching people out of judgment into God's mercy. Now, that's a daunting thing. And it's an important work. And it's a work that he gives to all his disciples, every single one of them. And we're going to hear it fleshed out more in the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel. And you say, oh my goodness, that's not me. I, I could not be a fisher of men. I mean, that's not me. I'm so afraid. I don't even understand the most basic things about the Gospel. Okay, well, neither do I, by the way. It's more of a mystery to me now than it was 30 years ago. Yet it's simpler and more beautiful and more compelling. And look at who Jesus picks. This is so encouraging. He picks men to be fishers of men who themselves have been fished out by his mercy. Right? He doesn't pick Marines. He doesn't pick the hardcore, great, strong people. He picks ordinary men and their most fundamental qualification. By the way, they're from the place of darkness. Do you notice that? They're from Galilee. They're from Zebulun and Naphtali. They were in that darkness. And so Jesus, the people he picks to be fishers of men are people who were once in the darkness. That he is rescued out. Their, quali- their qualification is that they've been rescued by Jesus. Same with you and me. They're very ordinary men. Jesus doesn't look at them and say, wow, you know, 
Simon and Andrew, I can see that you're full of leadership potential. You have all kinds of people skills. You're very articulate. I see you have a boldness about you. Therefore, I will pick you. Follow me because you are fishers of men. Ah, right? No, 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 no. What they are has nothing to do with the reason that Jesus chose them. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It all depends on what's in him and not in what's in them. You know what that means, friends? None of us have any excuses. It's good news and it's scary. Right? If you follow Jesus, you will learn how to be a fisher of men. And the way you'll learn it is this way. You speak out of your experience of God's mercy. It's not very hard. If you're responding to that call of repentance, that call of relational uh, joinder with Jesus, and you're following him, you're going to be daily experiencing that mercy. And that experience in that relationship will make you fishers of men. Friends, the kingdom is good news. It's a gospel because the king himself is good news. Look at what he's called us to. Look at what he's come to do for us so that we can join him in his healing of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. The privilege of knowing you, the privilege of knowing that you've come for us, how you've come for us, that you've called us, and what you're calling us to is so awesome. It dignifies us. It encourages us. It blesses us. And now we pray that by your Spirit you would take our lives and let them be all consecrated for you. We pray in your name. Amen.